You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. How are we doing tonight? So I want to I want to say this out on the front end that uh, you know next week starts our campus tour. Uh, so if you haven't heard about that yet, next week we're actually going to be having overflow at uh, TWU and Kitty McGee Arena. Um, now I know that was all teed up to just wooed, I could tell. Uh, but we, we want you to know, if you go to UNT, like this overflow is for you as well. And then the next week we're coming to UNT, so teed up, that overflow is for you as well. We're going to be posting information uh, on our social media and emailing it out if you're on our email list of you know, where to park for free and uh, you know, where Kitty McGee Arena is and all this good stuff. I, I hope if you go to UNT, you'll join us and bring people with you because, one, it's going to be really, I think, cool and unique to worship uh, with T-Dub at T-Dub and then vice versa the next week. And, uh, and again, I said this last week, if you haven't been to T-Dub yet, uh, you're missing out. It's a great campus and a, and a really cool place. So if you were here last week, uh, I introduced to you three people that are pretty much here every week. Uh, person one, person two, person three. Do you remember that if you were here last week? If not, I'm going to recap really quick. Person number one, uh, this is somebody who is here every week, is the person who pretty much grew up in the church. Like you've basically identified uh, as a Christian your whole life. Uh, you know you know, all the right answers. If, if you grew up in the church, you know what I'm talking about. You know all the right answers. You know all the right people. You feel comfortable in general in a setting like this. That's person number one. Uh, we also pointed out last week about person number one. If you're not careful because... You're so accustomed to being around all these things and you know the right answers, you kind of take for granted that God's salvation offered to you in Christ is yours. And so if you're not careful, you could actually miss out on the invitation that he has extended to you uh, to the feast that we studied last week in Luke 14. That's person number one. Person number two, uh, and this person is here every week, you're, you're broken. Uh, you are, you're hurting on the inside. And, and you're ashamed of it. Like you, you don't want people getting too close to you because you're afraid of what they might learn or see about you. Uh, you're here and you want to be here, but because you're so ashamed of you know, your past or even your present, the stuff that's in your life, you're, 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 cut, you're doing everything you can to cover that stuff up because you're afraid that if I found out or if the people in here found out that you were struggling with the sin that you're struggling with or you had the past that you have or you have the present that you have, that we wouldn't want you here. So, so that's person number two. And by the way, uh, if we do find out about that stuff about you, we still want you here. You need to know that. Person number three, you're similar to person number two. Um, because you don't feel worthy to be here. You're, you're the one who's probably sitting in the back row or sitting on the edge because you plan on making a, uh, a quick exit at the end of this. Um, you're like person number two in that you have things in your life that you're ashamed of, but unlike person number two, you don't feel like you have the ability to cover it up. In fact, when you were invited to come here, whenever that was, uh, your first thought in your mind, whether you said it out loud or not, was, am I even allowed to come to something like that? Now, here's why I recap those three people. I recap those three people because I want you to know that I'm a hybrid between person number one and person number two. Uh, I grew up around the church, uh, so I, I, in general, my whole life have felt comfortable in settings like this. I, you know, quote unquote, knew or know, you know, all the right answers uh, to get by in a setting like this. Uh, I've I, pretty much my whole life, growing up until really high school and college, all my friends were Christians. Um, that, that, was, that was essentially my life. I'm also person number two, though. You need to know this about me. I've got a lot of, a lot of stuff in my life, a lot of junk in my life that I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm very ashamed of, honestly. I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I wish wasn't there. Huge regrets in my life. Uh, there's things in my past that, uh, that have, God has needed to remove from my life. There's things right now in my life that God is working uh, to remove from my life. The way I've kind of described it to people 
is uh, I'm a product of God's grace, but I'm also a project for God's grace. Um, I, I, I don't, I, there's, there's stuff in my life I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of, I, I don't like. And, and thinking about last week and the feast that God invites us to, I'm so thankful that he sends Jesus to bring the poor, the blind, and the crippled to the feast. Because if it weren't for that, if it weren't for that fact, I wouldn't have a seat at the table. You know, when it comes to being blind, like so often I find myself blind to the consequences, consequences of the sinful decisions that I make. Uh, so often I find myself blind to the majesty and the awesomeness of God to where my affections are drawn towards other lesser things and pleasures. When it comes to being crippled, if it wasn't for God's grace actively at work in my life, uh, I would be crippled in my sin. And when it comes to being poor, uh, I'm dead broke as far as what I can bring uh, to the table, as far as what I can bring uh, to offer to God. The feast, you know, that we were talking about last week, it's not a potluck. You know what I mean by potluck? Like, this is a Baptist church. Baptist churches have potlucks. Our ministry has a potluck in November, our Thanksgiving potluck. It's the greatest thing in the world. Potlucks are great. But this feast in Luke 14, it's not a potluck. And in some ways, that's good because some people bring some shady stuff to potlucks. It's not a potluck, though, because we don't have anything worthy to bring to the table. God, he's the one who's provided the seat and the spread. Our only responsibility is to sit down. So here's what I want you to hear. Salvation is completely free. I hope you understand that. Salvation is completely free. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it with our actions because we are too deep into debt. Thankfully, Jesus Christ bought us out of our debt. He, he, he paid for us uh, on the cross. He paid for us with his perfect life and on the cross. The point is there's room at the table for you. So the question we asked last week I'm going to come back to you here at the beginning is, what's keeping you from the table? Some of you are like, man, what table are you talking about? I wasn't here last week. Go back and listen to the podcast. God's invited you to a feast, his eternal kingdom. You have a seat at the table. What's keeping you from that seat at the table? If you're person number two or person number three, and the thing keeping you from the table is this idea that you are not worthy to be at the table, then please know that none of us are. That's what's so scandalous about this story. None of us belong at the table, yet Jesus has saved us seats at the table. So if that's you and you're thinking that, what's keeping you from the table? What's keeping you from responding to Christ's invitation to you? If you're person number one, uh, what's keeping you? You know, the tug of the world is intense. The tug and the power of, of worldly pleasures and desires, it's strong, it's powerful. We saw this guy say this last week, it's amazing how much can be shut out by an apparently small thing. That's why we're calling this series Eclipse. What happens when the world gets in the way? You know, when you think about an eclipse, specifically uh, a lunar eclipse, the earth moves, the world moves in between, perfectly in between the sun and the moon. And what it does is it completely blocks out the sun from the moon. So the moon gets none of the light of the sun. Even though the earth is so much smaller, the world is so much smaller than the magnificent sun, the moon, if you were standing on the moon, you wouldn't be able to see the sun at all. And the same is true in our life. When this powerful, intense tug of the pleasures of the world get between us and Jesus, it blocks him out. And, and all we see is how big and amazing the world is, even though it's significantly, immeasurably smaller than the sun. I'm pleading with you tonight, don't trade in the life that God has for you for some short-lived, temporary, non-eternal pleasures that college and the world can offer you. There's room at the table for you. That's where we were last week. So tonight, we pick up where we left off 
in Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 14. So Luke chapter 14, picking up where we left off. I, I, I hope that you put on your big boy, big girl britches tonight. I hope you wore your spiritual cup. I don't know if I can say that in church. Uh, but you, you, any of y'all play baseball growing up? Let me see hands. Okay, I played baseball growing up. Uh, any of y'all remember that punk kid that would walk through the dugout with his baseball bat and just randomly be like, cup check, and then like hit you right in between the legs? You know what I'm talking about? That was you. You were the punk kid. Is that what you're saying? Oh, that was your cousin. Okay. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not going to do that to you tonight. I'm going to warn you up front that, uh, that this is going to be a spiritual gut check tonight. And, uh, and if you listen... And if you, if you receive it, even though it might hurt a little bit, it could literally change your life forever. God got a hold of my heart in college, and it was primarily through the use of this text that we're going to study tonight that he got a hold of my heart. And I told you I'm person number one, so I grew up around the church, uh, was in my mom's womb, hearing sermons about Jesus. It was a little bit muffled in there, but I was hearing sermons about Jesus in my mom's womb. Uh, felt comfortable pretty much my whole life in this setting. And here's the thing, like... Most of my life, the expectations that were placed on me by my church, the expectations that were placed on me by my Christian parents and by my Christian friends and the other Christians that I was surrounded by were essentially go to church, read your Bible daily, don't cuss, and don't have sex before marriage. Like that's what I grew up thinking the Christian life was all about. But then I get to college and I read this text. And I'm telling you, this text ruined everything for me. What we're going to see in here tonight is Jesus lays out the terms of discipleship and he lays out the basic job description of a disciple. Now, if you grew up in the church, the word disciple is not a foreign word to you. If you didn't grow up in the church, listen to what I'm about to say. If you did grow up in the church, you probably think you know what disciple means, but you may not. So hear this. A disciple is essentially a follower of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 11, it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch was the city north of Jerusalem. We'll study it later, probably this year. But it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In other words, to be a Christian in its truest sense is to be a disciple. So many of you in here would say, yeah, I consider myself to be a disciple. But you would say that you consider yourself to be a disciple because for the most part, you meet the culturally Christian expectations of you of going to church and learning to read your Bible daily and essentially being a decent human being. So if I just described you, prepare yourself because tonight might be a little bit rough. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Are you ready for this? You're not ready for it. Are you ready for Luke 14, 25? Are you ready for this? says, now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, 
Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So let me just kind of sum up what happens here. Jesus lays out the terms of discipleship at the beginning, the first couple of verses. Then he gives you a job description of what it is to be a disciple. And then at the very end, verse 33, he kind of circles back around to give one final punch-to-the-gut statement that we're going to look at tonight. Go back to verse 26. It says, if anyone comes to me, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yeah, even his own life. Let me tell you why he says, yeah, even his own life. The reason he he stops there and says, yes, even his own life is because imagine what these people, these great, great crowds who've been following Jesus around, seeing him do all these miracles, like that's all they've seen up to this point. Crazy miracles, 5,000 people fed with just a few pieces of bread and fish, 4,000 people. Same thing again, he walks on water, he calms the storm, raises Lazarus, all this crazy stuff. So naturally all these crowds are following Jesus. And then he turns around to them and says, hey, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, they're thinking, what? And he says, right when they're thinking, what? He's reading their facial expressions. He says, yeah, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Now, this isn't a passage that you can sit down and, and, and just read and sip your coffee and move on from. You can't do that. This is not a passage that I can stand up here and just preach a cute little three-point sermon on how to have a better life and put a funny illustration at the beginning and a, and a heart-wrenching one at the end, and then we're done. We can't do that with this text. I mean, again, he says, if anyone doesn't hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, yeah, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. I mean, dang, Jesus. Like, like what's wrong with you? Dude, you know you got, I mean, I'm picturing like what these, what his disciples, the 12 closest are thinking at this point. They're probably looking at him thinking, bro, you finally got all these crowds following you. Now you're going to scare them off. What are you thinking? Like, isn't the point to have a lot of people following you? Now you're saying this crazy stuff? And this honestly, I think, is one of the reasons that we should believe Jesus and be willing to trust Jesus. Because, man, being in front of thousands of people, it's got to be intoxicating. Like, I can't imagine having this great, massive following like Jesus did. Can you imagine being this celebrity and having this massive following of people? That's got to be intoxicating, right? Like, to the point that you begin bowing down to their wants, catering to their wants, so that you can keep the crowd and grow the crowd. But what's amazing about Jesus is he doesn't do that, though that's the natural human thing to do. That's what everybody else on this planet does. When they start to get a following, they do whatever they can to keep that following. He doesn't do that. He sticks to his mission, even if it means scaring everybody away with some crazy sounding stuff. You should trust Jesus on that point alone. Not to mention he raised us from the dead. But So he says, again, I want you to hear this. Drive it in your mind. If anyone doesn't, what's the word? Hate. His father, his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, he cannot be, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And when we read this, especially those of you, person number one, we jump way too quickly to the fact that Jesus didn't literally mean hate them. Like that goes completely against God's law, his law, BT dubs, and it goes completely against the fact that he had already said, love your enemies. Charles Spurgeon, great pastor, he's dead now, he said this, do not misunderstand this passage. Our Lord does not use the word hate in our common acceptation of the term. For no man would hate his own life. He means that the love of all these must be secondary to the love we bear to him. Compared with our love to our Lord, 
all our lower love must be more like hate. We must be willing to give up everything, to give up even ourselves, our entire selves to him. For Christ will have all or nothing. He will never divide the human heart with any rival. If we profess to serve him, we must have him for our only master and not attempt to serve two masters. A professor from Dallas Theological Seminary wrote in commenting on this. He said, one's loyalty to Jesus must come before his loyalty to his family, even to life itself. But again, I think we jump too quickly to the fact that he doesn't literally mean hate. And we miss that Jesus had the option of saying essentially what Spurgeon just said. He had the option to say, hey guys, if you're going to be my disciple, then you've got to love me so much more than anything else that your love for everything else doesn't even compare. He could have said that. And it would have made, it would have made sense. But if we jump to that's what he meant, then we miss the fact that he chose to use the word hate. He's trying to get a point across. And choosing to use that word, here's what he's saying. Well, he's not saying, okay, so I'm Jesus. Jesus should be first and your family second, if this was like the line, the order. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus should be first. And if anyone doesn't hate his Mother, his father, lost my train of thought, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So family is here. It's not even in the picture. The point that he's getting at, that was weird talking to myself out there, the point that he's getting at, the point that he's getting at is if you want to be his disciple, if you want to, for real, like be a follower of Jesus, then Jesus has to be first, and there is no close second. That's why he says, if anyone doesn't hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sister, yeah, I'm not crazy. Even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Some of you are like, well, that's really not a problem for me because honestly, I'm not a huge fan of my parents. And my boyfriend or my girlfriend just broke up with me, so I'm kind of like hacked at them right now. And my sister's annoying. So, well, for everyone else in the room, for everyone else in the room, you've got some serious heart investigation to do. Like, who really has your loyalty? I mean, this text more than ever has taken, I think, a hold of my heart, because especially now that I'm married, because, because now the only thing on that list of, you know, mother, father, brother, sister, wife, children. The only thing on the list that I don't have is children, unless there's something baking in the oven that I don't know about over there. But <laughs> I mean, if God calls you somewhere miles away from your family, would you go? I mean, Leslie's family lives in Houston. My family lives all up in Colorado. So, you know, do we, do we decide to move closer to our family in Houston or closer to my family in Colorado because we you know, maybe when we have kids one day, like that's, we want to have the grandkids closer to the grandparents. Do we make our decision based on that? Or do we go or we stay where we are based on what God tells us to do? I mean, what if God calls you to do, uh, what if God calls you to go somewhere to do something that your boyfriend or your girlfriend doesn't like? Who do you break up with? Do you break up with your girlfriend or do you break up with God's call? Here's, I think, the the one that we'll struggle with most one day. So what if one day you get married and you have kids? And God calls one of your kids, once he's a little bit older, once she's a little bit older, to move to Asia to serve him. 
Do you try to pull her back and say, heck no, you ain't going over there? Or do you encourage her and say, man, go, go, go? You know, when Leslie and I got married, before we got married, we, put, we looked through our vows, put, put together our vows, and we didn't really do anything crazy, you know, different with our vows than what are some typical vows, and that was purposeful because, the, you know, I think the most common vows that you probably would think of when you think of vows are, are common for a reason, like they're super legit. But we did add a couple of things to our vows, and one of the things we added was, um, I will always put our relationships with the Lord first. I will never restrain you from serving the Lord, but will instead always encourage you to do so. And, and where that came from was, um, you know, we, we had you know, been praying through it together, talking about it together, and our whole relationship, you know, we're talking about, you know, where is God leading us and what is that going to look like? But a couple years before meeting Leslie or starting to date Leslie um, was, I, I, I went to South Asia um, to, to work with our people group that our church has been working with. Some of y'all don't know about that yet. That's fine. But um, we, uh, we have this translator there that works with us pretty much every time we go. And I was hearing his story, and, uh, and he, was, he, was, uh, he was just sharing like how he met his wife and just how he came to know Christ, which is an incredible story. But then he, he was talking about how he and his wife, as they began to consider marriage and stepped into that moment of like making their vows to each other, they made a promise to each other to never love each other more than they loved Jesus. And you need to put, you need, I need to put some context on this. Where they live, it's, it is one of the most heavily persecuted provinces in this country that is one of the more heavily persecuted countries in the world. And so for them to say that, here's, I mean, I, I, and he shared some of the story here. here, here is, here's the perspective they had when they said that. This guy, he's thinking, so if, and, and think about this. He's, he, they're thinking if, if, if they're being persecuted for the faith, and somebody is holding a knife to his throat and saying to his wife, you better renounce your faith in Christ. They were committing to each other before they got married that if she was being commanded to renounce her faith in Christ so that he doesn't get his throat slit, then she would say to him in that moment, I love you, I love him more, and I'll see you in heaven. This is the picture that I think Jesus has in mind when he says what he says in verse 26. Who is your loyalty really to? Verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, please understand how they heard this statement. I mean, for us, when we hear cross, like crosses are decorative for us. There, I mean, you go to Mardell, if you've ever been to Mardell, there's like 800 of them up on the wall, and they're all different designs and junk, and you'd like hang them in your bathroom, or your living room, or whatever. Or you got jewelry, you know, with crosses. That's not what it means to bear a cross. You know, you get tattoos of, you know, the cliche shoulder cross. Some of y'all, I'm sure, have that. I'm sorry, it's cliche. Uh, you know, there's all these ways that we use crosses decoratively, but please understand how they would have heard that statement. Bear your cross. You want to know what they're hearing? They're immediately picturing a very vivid, gory image. I mean, for them, Roman crucifixion was normal. They had probably all witnessed up close a Roman crucifixion. So they knew that in a Roman crucifixion, the person, after being beaten almost to the point of death before crucifixion, he's taken to the crucifixion site, thrown down on this, on this beam. So there's already a long beam, a tall beam stuck into the ground. Then there's this uh, cross beam on the ground. They throw him down on the cross beam. And they begin to take these, uh, these spikes, probably about this big, uh, and, and nail them through that person's wrists. 
Not breaking bones, but there's a really important nerve that goes through your wrist. Those of you who are like biology, science people or whatever, there's this important nerve. And it would sever that nerve, causing excruciating. In fact, the word excruciating, you know where that word came from? It means in in Latin or whatever, out of the cross, excruciating, crucifixion. You see the connection there. That word was created to describe the pain experienced on a cross. So the nail was driven through that nerve. And as it grinded against that nerve, it would send fiery pain up the arms into the body. And then they would take that cross beam, they would lift it up onto the, onto the permanent beam in the ground. And as they lifted it up, two things would happen. Their arms shift, their wrists shift on that nail, again, grinding against that nerve, causing fiery pain going throughout the arms. But also, uh, scientific stuff tells us that typically what would happen is their shoulders would then dislocate because all the weight shifts now to their lower body. Their shoulders would dislocate. They now fasten that cross beam to the vertical beam and begin nailing their feet into the cross. And interestingly enough, there's another significant nerve going through their feet where they would nail that nail, causing the exact same kind of pain now coming up through the legs and the arms. And they would connect them to the cross in such a, in, in, in such a way that in order to take a breath, they would have to push themselves with their legs against the splintery wooden cross and then push up to get a breath. Just grinding into their already beaten, scourged back. In fact, the way that you typically died of, of crucif- in a crucifixion was by asphyxiation. You essentially drown in your own carbon dioxide. You can breathe in, but you can't get it out of your lungs. Women were crucified with their backs facing the crowd because it was, it was just too terrible, according to history books, to see a, a, to see a woman crucified like that or killed like that. So they'd face their face to the cross, their back to the crowd. You know, a lot of times we picture the cross being tall, but if you look at a lot of historical records, many crosses, in fact, many believe that Jesus' cross was short. So many people were crucified essentially at eye level. So not only are you in this excruciating pain, but you're humiliated. People spitting in your face, talking trash to you, maybe hitting you in the face, urinating at the foot of your cross. In crucifixion, it was only allowed to outside the city. It was too unsanitary to happen inside the city. The typical crucifixion lasted two days. It took two days, somebody hanging on the cross, to, to die of asphyxiation. The longest on record is nine days. The reason Jesus' was so short was not because God was so gracious to him, not letting him suffer that long. It's because he barely made it to the cross alive. And then when you're hanging there on the cross, birds, insects come and feed on your open wounds as you bake in the heat of the sun. That's the picture that they had when Jesus says, you got to bear your cross. One commentator straight up says it like this. He says, indeed, he who is not willing to die the most hideous, hideous death by crucifixion for the sake of his love and loyalty to Christ cannot be his disciple. The general idea that these words of Jesus about bearing the cross refer to passive submission to all kinds of afflictions like disappointments, pain, sickness, and grief that come upon man in his life, that is totally wrong. You know, our culture, we, we've, we've redefined what it is to be a normal Christian. We've lowered the bar so much. Like in our culture, to be a disciple, to be a, a follower of Jesus, to be a quote-unquote normal Christian is to go to church and read the Bible. But let me tell you what I was thinking about this week as I'm studying this text. I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I don't have to hate my family to do any of that. I don't have to bear my cross to go to church 
to read my Bible every day. I don't have to give up anything except maybe a little bit of time watching Netflix. So why would Jesus say all of this if being a disciple was simply going to church and reading your Bible? Like, why does he set the bar so high? We read on, verse 28. It says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So Jesus sets the bar for discipleship and following him so high because he knows what he's calling us into. See, up until this week, I'll just be honest with you, I've always thought these stories, these two stories about the builder and the king going out to war, I always thought these stories were... uh, essentially referring to us being the ones to consider and count the cost. But after this week looking at this, I don't think that we're the subject of these stories. I think Jesus is actually the the subject. I think Jesus is saying that he's the builder and he's the king in these two stories. He's the one who has looked at what he's trying to accomplish to determine what kind of followers and workers and soldiers he needs. And you look at these two stories. I don't think they're random stories just to show an illustration. I think they're very intentionally picked by Christ. Jesus came to build and Jesus came to battle. Jesus came to build his kingdom. And Jesus came to battle for the hearts of mankind. His mission was to build and to battle. His method is us. His people. Disciples. And that's why the bar is set so high. He's looking for builders and battlers, workers and warriors. You're not a disciple because you go to church and read your Bible. If that was the case, he wouldn't have said what he says in verse 26 and 27. To be a disciple is to join Jesus in his mission to build his kingdom and to battle for the hearts of mankind. That's why the bar is set so high. Giving your life to a project of that massiveness, that's costly. You have to sacrifice your dreams, your ambitions, if you want to be a part of that. To go to war, that's risky. That takes sacrifice. And you might lose your life in the process. Listen, Jesus doesn't want half-hearted followers. I mean, if you quit halfway through building, like the, the, the construction we're doing over here, if we were to leave it like that, how stupid would that look? What good would that be? If we're to quit halfway in joining him in his mission to build, what good is that to him? If we're to quit half, like if, if, if we are to go to war and retreat at the first sign of danger, what good is that? Listen, disciples follow. Jesus is building and battling. If you're not building and battling, it doesn't matter how much you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how much you go to church. You are not a disciple because you're not following Jesus. 
So why has, has the bar for discipleship in our culture been lowered so much? I want to give you two reasons for that. One is this. It's because we have redefined Jesus' mission and his method. We've redefined his mission to be not about building his kingdom and battling for the hearts of mankind. We've redefined his mission to be making us happy, helping us to achieve our dreams and goals in life. That's how we've redefined his mission. Just go look at the books at Mardell, the bestsellers. And we've, we've redefined his method to be pay pastors to cater to our needs, pay pastors to help us achieve those goals in our life. That's the first reason the bar's been lowered on discipleship in our culture. The second reason is, straight up, because we've stopped reading the Bible. Look, this is not a one-time occurrence of Jesus saying this stuff. I mean, if you are really reading Scripture, if you just read the Gospels, it is over and over and over in Scripture. This is all the time that you hear this being said. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Luke 9, 23 to 25. Mark 8, 34, 38. Matthew 19, Matthew 10, Matthew 7, Matthew 7 again. It's all over. So you get to verse 33. He says, so therefore, in other words, now some of your translations, I think it's a poor translation. It says, in the same way. Some of you may have that. What it should say is, so therefore, because it isn't in the same way that these two considered the cost, you consider the cost, because again, we're not the ones considering the cost. Jesus considered the cost so that he could then set the terms of discipleship for us. So he's saying, so therefore, in other words, because I have counted the cost, because I've considered the cost, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. John Calvin, in his commentary on this text, he said this, the truest way to renounce all one's possessions is to be ready at any instant to abandon everything, to entrust oneself wholly to the Lord as a free and unattached man, and to pursue one's calling rising above every obstacle. So back in 2000, actually it was probably 2008, I started discipling these, these three, three guys, and coming into the year 2009, I, I, I told them in the fall, I was like, hey, so we're going to embark on this discipleship thing again. But this year, at the end of the year, I'm going to take y'all with me overseas. I have the opportunity to travel quite a bit overseas, and I told them, I want y'all to come with me this time. And I said, I don't know where we're going yet. I haven't figured that out. I want us to actually begin praying about where the Lord might send us together to go serve him somewhere overseas, just for a couple of weeks. And so we began praying about that. And I'm telling you, just, just after that conversation took place, I get a phone call uh, from some people that I've been working with uh, who said, hey, there's a need in Southeast Asia, one of the few remaining communist countries in the world to do some smuggling, which I'd never done any of that before. But basically, they needed some people to smuggle in some, some stuff to help the long-term missionaries there accomplish their long-term strategy. And they were kind of using this small fish, big fish method, which is smart. Instead of using the big fish to smuggle, the big fish being the missionaries that are there long-term, and if they get caught, then the whole mission is gone. Use just one-week, two-weekers like myself to come in, smuggle. If you get caught, Worst case scenario, you get integrated, integrated and then like sent home, and, and, the, and the work still continues. And so uh, pretty early on in 2009, I get this phone call saying all that, and so I start thinking, well, I don't know if I really want to do that, but uh, yeah, sure, I'll think about it. And so keep meeting with these guys, and you know, the whole time we'd meet, we're praying, Lord, where do you want us to go? Where's a, where's a need? We don't just want to go somewhere. We don't want to glorify vacation. We want to go somewhere to get something done for you. 
And uh, <clears throat> so the whole time we're meeting, praying through this, the weirdest stuff started happening. One of the weirdest things that started to happen was almost every meeting, there'd be somebody sitting behind us, or two people, three people sitting behind us from somewhere in Southeast Asia, speaking in a Southeast Asian language. And I didn't think that they were picking up on that was happening like every week somehow. Uh, but I'm, I'm hearing it, and I'm thinking, well, that's kind of odd. Um, and uh, didn't say anything about it, though, because I didn't want them to think anything of it. And then, like, a few weeks in, one of them was like, hey, do you realize that uh, every time we've met, there's people behind us talking in some Asian language? You think God's trying to tell us where we're supposed to go? And I'm like, crud, they figured it out. Um, <laughs> so we're, 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 we're praying through it and everything, and it gets pretty close to, I think, Christmas, or maybe a little bit after Christmas, and um, they had already been saving up money, and, and, I, and I said, so there's an opportunity that has come about to go to... Uh, uh, to, the, to a country in Southeast Asia. I didn't tell him what country it was. And as soon as I said that, one of the guys that I discipled, he's like, dude, please tell me. And he named the exact country that we were going to. He goes, please tell me it's this country, man. I've been wanting to go to that country ever since we started praying. I felt like that was the country it was going to be. And I'm like, crud, yeah, it's that country. <laughs> um, and uh, so we ended up going. And I'm just thinking, you know, I have mixed emotions going on. I'm, I'm stoked. I'm thinking this is going to be like the coolest thing ever. Like, I don't know, James Bond sort of adventure for Jesus. I, I don't know if that's a good <laughs> comparison because he was a pretty terrible guy. But um, anyways, I'm thinking it's going to be cool. But then, so we land in, uh, we land in, in uh, the, uh, a rural Southeast Asian town that bordered this communist country we were going to smuggle into. And uh, I remember landing at this airport, and it was nothing like DFW or Love Field. It was like a shack. And we, we get off, I almost said download off the plane, whatever. We <laughs> came down off the plane uh, and unloaded our stuff, hence I guess when my mind was thinking download. We get off the plane, anyways, and uh, we, uh, we walk to the, to the shed, and they get our bags and everything. There's no, like, turnstile, you know, where you get your bags or, or whatever. Turnstile, that's not the right word. Uh, so they just had a window. They throw their bags <laughs> through the window. And uh, we get our bags. We see the guy that we were supposed to meet up with um, standing kind of inconspicuously, not really because he was the only other white dude in this whole place, uh, in the corner. And uh, we, we take uh, our, our stuff over to him, and he pulls us outside the shack uh, over by this big old tree, and he pulls a scribbled piece of notebook paper out of his pocket, and he says, all right, I need you all to listen carefully because i only got time to explain this to you once. Um, in a second, you're going to take your bags over to my car. You're going to dump everything out in my car. We're going to refill your bags with the stuff you're going to smuggle into the country tomorrow. Um, after we do that, you're going to go grab one of those taxis. And he points over there, and it's all these, like, jank-looking trucks, and those are apparently the taxis. And he says, you're going to hop in one of those taxis. You're going to tell them to take you to the border town. When you get to the border town, do not cross the border today. You're going to get to the border town. You'll see a four-way stop. At the four-way stop, there's a, there's a traffic light. doesn't work. At the traffic light that doesn't work, turn left. There's going to be two houses or two buildings, structures, whatever. Uh, the second one, there's going to be a lady sitting in a rocking chair in front. That's where you're going. Go inside. Don't even talk to the lady. Just go inside. She'll show you a room. Stay in your room the rest of the night. And, uh, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing you were thinking just now, whoever <laughs> made that noise. So he said, the next morning, tomorrow morning, uh, I am, y'all going to be my guinea pigs on something. And I'm thinking, guinea pigs? Why are you calling us guinea pigs? I don't like the idea of that. I don't even like guinea pigs. Uh, he's like, I've got some DVDs I'm going to give you. And uh, what you're going to do is, technically it's legal to do this in this country, so we're going to see if it works. You're going to stand on the border, this side of the border, and as people cross from that communist country into uh, this country where it's technically legal to do this, you're going to hand them these DVDs. It's essentially sharing the gospel on video for them. And uh, you're going to try to hand out as many as you can. If you get caught, then we'll know not to do it in the future. I was like, pause for a second. What happens if we get caught? And he's like, I don't know. That's why you're our guinea pigs. Um, True story. And uh, so... 
He's like, if you don't get caught, hand them all out, and then I want you to go back to your rooms, stay in your rooms for at least two, three hours. If nobody comes knocking on your door asking what you were doing, then I want you to cross the border. And uh, he said, now when you cross the border, I don't want anybody to touch your bags. Now I'm thinking, pause for a second. I've been through a lot of customs and, and a lot of borders. Uh, they always check our bags. And he's like, yep, we're going to pray that they don't. And uh, so I'm like thinking, all right. And so he says, nobody touches your bags because they'll see how heavy, you are, how heavy they are. They'll want to look inside and obviously they'll find what you're smuggling in the country. He said, once you get through the borders, I'm thinking once we get through, if we get through, uh, you're going to hop in another taxi, another jank truck, and you're going to tell them to take you to this city. So he tells us all that. And then he says, any question? I'm like, bro, I got a lot of questions. <laughs> and uh, so he basically says, all right, we dump out our stuff. He, he, uh, he, yeah, he gives us our stuff that we load into our bags. And then he, uh, he says, all right, I'm out of here. Oh, one last thing. If you get caught, make sure to get your story straight and you don't know me. And he gets in his truck and he leaves. And I'm standing there with three of my students and this one other dude, and I'm like, what the heck are we doing here? Let's go home, you know? So we hop in this truck, and uh, we cross, or we don't cross the border. Of course, we didn't do that. We do everything he told us to do. We hand out everything the next morning. We get rid of everything. Super awkward. And I was like, man, what is going on? So anyways, we didn't get questioned or anything like that. We get rid of our stuff. We cross the border. Nobody touches our bags as we cross the border. This cat actually crossed the border with us randomly, uh, probably smuggling something. I don't know. And uh, we get in this truck. They take us to the village or the city that we were going to. And then here's how we spent basically the next week. We rented these motorcycles, which I had never ridden a motorcycle before in my life. Uh, That was our mode of travel for the week. And it was amazing, by the way. And our goal was to take this stuff. We strapped backpacks to the front of our motorcycles packed them full of this material that we had smuggled. And uh, the, the guy that we were working with there, which we didn't see him until the end of the trip, he basically could um, pull up on his computer all these places where they had made drops throughout the country of this material we were smuggling. The idea was you take this stuff, put it in a Walmart sack, because who wouldn't think to put stuff in a Walmart sack in a country where they don't even have Walmart? Uh, you put it in a Walmart sack, and you try to hide it somewhere where they'll find it no sooner then uh, no sooner than two hours after you drop it, no later than two weeks after you drop it. So basically, he, he gave us, here's where you're going to go on this map. In fact, he said, don't go past this point. There's a, there's a police checkpoint there, and you don't want to go past that. And it's into a province where uh, three believers were killed last month. You don't want to go into that province. Um, and he said, uh, within this area, there's about, I don't remember how many kilometers. They do kilometers over there everywhere, actually, except America. Um, and there's these little dirt roads that would come off of the main road, and, and there'd be a sign that would say, you know, village, that way, however many kilometers. You, we're going to go as far north as we can, then come back down and go off onto these dirt roads, make the drops, come back to the main road, go onto the dirt road, make the drop all the way down. We, we started, we drove all the way north and then came back because we didn't want to make drops, make drops, make drops, and then have to drive through all those places we'd made drops, and possibly people have already found stuff and want to question us. Are you with me? I'm talking fast. Okay, so we load our bags up, hop on our motorcycles, and we start driving north. And he, he told us that we're going to have a certain amount of space between this mile marker and that province we weren't supposed to go to. Well, he was completely off. Instead of like, you know, 75 kilometers, it was like 10 kilometers, which is not nearly enough kilometers for us to have to get rid of all the stuff that we had. So we just keep driving north, and suddenly we're at this police checkpoint that we weren't supposed to go to. And our bag, we haven't dropped anything out of our bags yet. And uh, so I'm, I'm in the front, you know, riding my motorcycle. I wish I brought a picture. I look so stupid on that thing. Uh, my legs are like out to the side because it was so small. But uh, we're driving up, and, and these police officers, they, 
get out in the middle of the highway, which the highway is like a country road here with a lot of potholes. They get out in, in the highway, and they just do this, like mean face, and they're like pointing over the side of the road. And I'm like, oh, crud. And uh, we had all memorized Hebrews 11 coming into this trip because we were like, hey, good chapter memorized. So I just start like quoting that chapter in my mind and praying, God, I'm about to poop my pants, and I don't know what is about to happen. Like, change this situation. And so we all pull over, and he's like, got this mean mug face on, and I'm thinking, he's going to open our bags, and we're going to jail. That's what's going to happen, and we don't have cell phones. I don't even know who to call, and uh, so we all pull over. We get to a complete stop, and as, like, my foot's going on to the ground, I'm about to, like, get off my bike, his face just changes, and he has this big smile, and he goes, like that, and I'm, like, standing there, like, what does that even mean? (laughs) And uh, I'm, like, in English, and I know he couldn't understand. I'm, like, so can we go? And he's, like, so I'm like, all right. So I kind of like slowly started to go because I didn't want to like get in trouble because I was misunderstanding him. And he just let us go on by. So we go into this province that we weren't supposed to go into. We went all the way to the north end of the province and made all of our drops actually inside of that province. Our first drop, we, uh, we threw it. We were nervous. So we just like threw it in the back of this truck that was parked on the side of the road as we drove by. Well, the guy, here's how it worked. There were three of us. I was in the back. Um, I, had a, uh, I had a notepad. Um, the guy in the middle was the one making the drop. The guy in the front had a GPS. So he would click this button on his GPS that would flag it like flag number 346. The guy would drop it as he drove by. Then I would make note of, okay, we dropped this one in the back of a truck. And then we'd get up the road some way, stop, act like we were taking pictures. He'd tell me what GPS number it was. I'd write down GPS 346, back of a truck. Then we went back after we made all of our drops to our missionary, plugged it into his computer. All these little flags pop up on his computer telling him where we made all of our drops. Pretty cool thing because then they could go back and check and see if they were taken later on. So we made our first drop. Y'all still with me? I'm talking fast. Okay. Made our first drop. Throw it in the back of this truck. It's a dirt road. Dude in front of me, name's Tyler. He's a college pastor now in Houston. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he trashes his bike. Like, he's looking back after he makes the drop, and he hits this bump and trashes his bike in this puddle. And uh, then we couldn't get the bike started. There was somebody on the other side of the truck that we didn't see who comes around to start figuring out what's going on. So we're, like, freaking out. Gosh, one drop, we're going to get caught. We got out of that situation. We ended up driving further. We got followed, like, two or three times, realized it because we would stop to make a drop. Somebody would stop right behind us and just be kind of, like, standing there watching so we just act like tourists, take pictures instead. Uh, there was this one road that we went down where we pulled off and, you know, like no tourists come to this part of the country. And we're going down this dirt road. There's like this restaurant right there and all these dudes sitting around a table eating. They see us drive by. They all stand up from their chairs looking at us like this. And we're like, oh, crud, we got to turn around, man. And uh, we get to this where there's a, there's a turn in the road to go to the village. And right as we're turning around, these two families, or families, these, this, this husband and wife, I guess, our husband and wife, come out of the house and they start yelling at us. And we're like, oh, crud, are we in trouble? And uh, instead of pointing us to go back, they're like, no, 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 pointing us back down the road. And we're thinking, well, these guys, I think, are going to come chase us, but they're telling us to go down the road. So I don't know, maybe God's telling us to go down the road through these people. So we went down the road. We made our drops. Everything was fine. Um, anyways, I share all that not because I want to I, I show how, like, my faith was tested maybe more than ever in this moment. That's part of the story. The reason I share this, okay, stick with me, is because of this couple that we learned about while we were there. So the first night, after all this was, we made all of our drops, we went to go stay with our missionary in a different part of the country. And while we were there, he, uh, he shared about this couple from that same village who about six months or so before had been arrested because they were sharing the gospel. They were arrested, beaten up, thrown in jail. And they'd been sharing the gospel, people were coming to know Christ. And he starts to tell us about this. A couple said, when they were in jail, they, they began praying, Lord, set us free from prison so we can go back to our village and continue our work. Well, they got set free from prison. 
but they weren't allowed to live in their home in the village. Instead, they were forced to live on the outskirts of town on a pig farm. They didn't know how to farm pigs, but they're thinking, okay, this is our circumstance, so what do we do? So they decided they would learn to farm pigs. Then they developed a strategy that they would, they would then uh, raise up all these pigs, and then they'd start bringing people into their farm, teach them how to raise pigs, and then loan them a pig to start their own pig farm. But in the process of teaching these other people from the village how to raise pigs to support their families, they would disciple them, share Jesus with them, knowing that if they get caught, like one of those people just decides to go tell the police station, hey, these people are doing what you told them not to do a few months ago, that they could go back to, back to jail, get beaten up again, lose everything, maybe even be killed. So I'm thinking, man, it'd be so cool to meet those people. And he, our missionary was like, I haven't even met them. Um, because for me to go to their place might cause too much attention to go there and destroy both of our ministries. Three nights later, we get a phone call while we're having dinner late one night, and it's that couple calling him saying, hey, uh, this husband and wife, they're like, my mom is on her deathbed, and her, one of her last wishes is she wants to meet the American missionary. And uh, so he's like, all right, I'll come out there. And he says, I can take a couple of you guys. And I'm like, all right, I'm going. And uh, so we hop in this truck. Late this night, we go out there. And we see this place. I mean, we're out there pitch black, being secretive about it and stuff. They're living in something that was not even as cool as the fort that I had in my backyard growing up. We go up and we spend some time with this lady um, who is in her last days. We pray for her. We talk with her. Then they take us over to their home, another fort-like structure. And they begin to share their story. And as they're sharing their story, uh, there's a kid, about 14 years old. It was their son, kind of running around in that little space, playing with this other dude. And the woman, the, 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 the woman, her name was uh, Sue Wat May, she says to us, obviously through translation, she says, hey, so we've been talking this whole time. Let me tell you what my son's doing right now, 14-year-old son. She says, so my 14-year-old son, about two weeks ago, he came up with this idea. What if I start inviting my friends over to our house, play with them for a couple hours, then I'll sit them down on that little chair right there, which was, which was like an egg carton crate thing, I don't know, or a soapbox. And he, uh, he said, I'll sit them down right there, I'll tell them about Jesus. And she said, two weeks ago, he started doing that. In two weeks, he's seen two of his friends come to know Christ. In a few minutes, he's about to sit that kid down and tell him about Jesus. We should pray for him. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the heck? Like, what an incredible picture of faith. Like, all my life, I've said, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever. But I'm, like, getting off the plane, not even in that country, thinking, man, I'm ready to go home. And here this 14-year-old kid is, younger than any of us in this room, knowing what his parents had just been through, seeing them get beat up and thrown in jail, knowing the same thing could happen to them again if he gets caught, the same thing could happen to him, and he's saying, hey, who cares? Something I've got is more important. I share all of that to say meeting people like that puts a whole new perspective on Luke 14. Our culture of Christianity is so insulated. And it's, it's totally possible for you to spend your whole life going to church and reading your Bible, but to never have your faith tested. And I'll be honest with you, I think in a lot of ways that's a huge blessing that we don't live in a place like that. But in a lot of ways, it's not a blessing. Because it allows too many of us to straddle the line of devotion to Jesus and only give him half of our heart when he demands all of our heart. When you think about what he's saying here in Luke 14, he's essentially drawing a line in the sand. Remember being like out on recess or you know, out on the playground at recess and, and your, you know, your friends are like putting together the teams, they draw a line in the sand, whatever, you with me or you not? I feel like it's kind of those mo- one of those moments with Jesus. 
He's drawing a line in the sand. We don't have sand, but we got masking tape. He's drawing a line in the sand. And he's, I mean, he's, he's saying, look, you're either with me or you're not. And he asks the question, you're going you're gonna to build in battle or not? Now, let me ask you this. So he poses this question to the crowd, and he says, here's the line. If you're over here, to be over here with me, you've got to build in battle. To be over here with me, you've got to hate your family. Yeah, I just intentionally use the word hate. Not just your family, your life too. To be over here, you've got to bear your cross. To be over here, you've got to renounce everything. Do you think if somebody came over there and stood in the straddled that line and said, I'm with you, Jesus. Do you think Jesus would have been like, cool, we got one? <laughs> what do you think he would have done? Can, can I tell you, this would not have happened in that situation. In fact, this is impossible to happen in that situation because of the way Jesus lays out the terms for discipleship. There is no middle ground in response to these statements. You can't be halfway. You're either all in or you're all out. And let me tell you, so many people end up staying over here because the tug of the world is so strong. Eclipse, what happens when the world gets in the way? You are, you are, you are mesmerized by how big and beautiful the earth is, but only if you could see behind it the sun, which is so much bigger, overpowering of the earth. So where are you? Jesus has put it out there. He's drawn the line in the sand. He says, if you want to be with me, where's your loyalty? You've got to hate your family, even your own life. I'm, like, you've got to love me, and everything else isn't even in the picture. It's out that door over there. If you want to be with me, you've got to bear your cross. If you want to be with me, you've got to renounce everything. Be willing to abandon it on the spot. So where are you at? And let me just say, if you're over here, can I ask you a question? What is it that's keeping you here? What is it? What it is, is it that has gotten in between you and Jesus that makes this spot look so much better than this spot? Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.